Hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we'll look big picture at what the Bible says about the hiddenness of God, not only to enhance our reading of Ezekiel, but to help us with more personal spiritual struggles and doubts. As we investigate the storyline of scripture, we'll be surprised to find the incredible kindness in God's social distancing and the incredible temporariness of it as well. In our study of the book of Ezekiel, we've noted a number of times how the unfolding message of the book is punctured by these key visions dealing with God's presence. In the introduction of Ezekiel, God's manifested presence is seen coming towards the exiles. Only that presence was a sign of his judgment. In chapters 8 through 11, which we just finished, another key moment, that concentrated presence of God actually leaves the temple in Jerusalem. And that leaving instead of coming is an act of judgment. But then at the very end of the book, in chapters 40 to 48, especially chapter 43, God's glory returns to a new temple in a new era. And that return is an act of redemption instead. And all of this really begs the larger question for us. What is the deal with God's presence and absence? Is he not everywhere? Or is he some places more than other places? Or more personally, like, why does he seem so hidden? Is that because he's left me like he's left the temple and Ezekiel? What would it take for him to show up again? And if he did, what would it be like? Would it be like the end of Ezekiel where his presence is an act of redemption? Or the beginning of Ezekiel where it's an act of judgment? In other words, if the activity of God is so closely tied to his presence and absence in the book of Ezekiel, how are we supposed to understand that in our own lives today? Well, today, we're going to try to answer these questions by expanding our scope beyond Ezekiel and looking at how the Bible as a whole gives us a framework for understanding God's presence and absence. You may have noticed that today's recording is marked as a standalone episode in the title. These are episodes on the Rebind that can be listened to pretty easily without having to know what's going on in the series that we're in. So sometimes, like today, they're posted because the topic fits into the series, even though it's independent of it. But other times, they're just there to break up the routine with a random topic related to the Bible. So if you're ever behind, or you're tuning in for the first time, and you want to know which episodes you can check out without needing to hear all the other ones, the episodes marked standalone are a great place to start. All right, now, full disclosure... The stuff we're talking about today is basically all a conversational translation of an academic research paper that I did on the hiddenness of God for a theology class that I took back in seminary. Now, that research included an in-depth analysis of the Bible, but it was all aimed at addressing some really common doubts and spiritual questions. So I thought this was the perfect chance to take that research and talk about it here in a more informal and down-to-earth setting. Whether in our own minds or in conversations with others that we know, we often hear questions like, where was God when 
blank? Or how is it that a God who is supposed to be so real and present feels so distant and obscure? One of the biggest takeaways for me from that class that I mentioned was recognizing there are almost always two sides to those questions. An intellectual side and an existential or or personal side. On the intellectual side, we ask those doubting questions because something isn't squaring right in our heads. There's a logical challenge that's not computing given what we think about who God is and the way that he works. But on the personal side, we ask those heart-wrenching questions because the pain we're feeling forces us to. It's more that our hearts are crying out than that our minds are contemplating. But usually the intellectual and the personal aspects crop up together. Now, sometimes the intellectual struggling produces personal struggles for us, and other times the pondering is just a byproduct of the haunting experiences we've had. But they almost always go together. And when you're talking with people about this or you're thinking through it for yourself, it's important to remember that, to to ask where a doubt or a question is coming from. Is this intellectual challenge really just a personal crisis in disguise? Or is this dramatic personal story really just ammunition for a religious debate? Because how you answer that will change or should change the way you engage in the conversation. And if you want proof of that, compare the book of Job in the Bible to Paul's speech in Athens in the book of Acts. Different situations being addressed, so they're addressed differently in terms of tone and even what's focused on. So this research that I did had both an intellectual and a personal side to it. On the intellectual side, there's a philosopher named J.L. Schellenberg, who's become popular in the last couple of decades for his agnostic argument against the existence of God, or at least argument against a personal God like the Bible's. And he uses God's hiddenness as the proof for that. So he comes up with this equation that basically goes something like, if God exists and he's perfectly loving, then he must always be at least open to a personal relationship with everybody. And since we can definitely prove that there's at least one person who has tried to relate with God or believe in him and gotten nothing in return, that perfectly loving God doesn't exist. It's just simple math, so he wants us to think. A loving God would never hide from those looking for him, and so a loving God can't exist because there are those looking for him who don't find him. Now, there's been a number of people who have tried debunking Schellenberg's equation by proving that it still works, that you can still end up with a perfectly loving God in the way he's defining love and openness. But I think you can't try winning in a game where the rules don't make sense to begin with. Because even if you win, you lose, because you're winning the wrong way, you know what I mean? If the premise... The assumption behind the equation is wrong, then we shouldn't be bending over backwards to try to make the math work. The problem is that Schellenberg's idea of what a perfectly loving God is and should do is based on 21st century Western models of unconditional support and parenting, 
and not on a robust understanding of what love is or how the scriptures define the love of God. So the people in my book who have been dead on in responding to these popular arguments like Schellenberg's are those who say, look, you're working with the wrong rules. You're ending up with the verdict that God doesn't exist because you're dealing with the wrong God. So, for example, Nick Turkakis, responding to Schellenberg's formula, says that God's distance and otherness is not a sign of his hatred or apathy at all. It actually tells us something about himself. The hiddenness reveals the kind of transcendent, almighty creator that we depend on. All right, I might already be getting too philosophical here, but basically I wanted to try throwing my hat in the ring. I I wanted to test another one of those your rules are broken rebuttals with a theory that I had been holding on to since high school. But this is where the personal side of it all fits in. Before I was taking theology classes, before I knew what a philosophical formula looked like, there was skinny little high school me, and, and I distinctly remember one person who I knew who wasn't a Christian, and one of the biggest things holding her back was this nagging question, if God is really there, why doesn't he just show up? And at that time, the best response that I could think of in my own mind was, well, is that what we really want? He will show up, right? Like the exiles got to glimpse, he's coming. But the question is if we are actually ready for that. But that was just sort of an off-the-cuff theory that I had on how the Bible understands God's presence and absence, and I never really thoroughly investigated it. And at the same time, as I was in Bible school and seminary, I never really saw that line of reasoning in any textbooks or class discussions. So that's why I decided to take the plunge in a research paper in seminary and investigate if that's actually the Bible's perspective, if God is intentionally delaying his showing up as an act of mercy. All right, so there's your lengthy backstory to today's episode. I hope that this investigation will get your brain cogs churning, that you philosophical nerds will have a heyday, but I also really hope this can personally help you and your friends in the doubts and the questions that you may have. To really do this justice, we're going to have to split it up into three separate weeks, but hopefully that'll give you some time to chew on this as we go instead of just dumping it on you all at once. So one of the first things I noticed as I tried investigating the storyline of the Bible for what it teaches us about God's hiddenness is that it's actually pretty complicated. Asking why God doesn't show up is not really a straightforward question because the Bible shows a wide variety of examples on how God manifests himself, in in what sense, why he chooses to show up, and what happens when he does. For every passage where the leaders of God's people fall dead on the spot for entering the Holy of Holies, like in Leviticus 10, there's another where they behold his heavenly throne room but are purified and live, like in Isaiah 6. In Exodus 33.20, the Lord warns, Man shall not see me and live. But both Jacob in the book of Genesis and Manoah in the book of Judges claim to be outliers. 
So with Manoa, for example, the father of reckless Samson, in Judges 13.21, Manoa realizes that the person he was just talking with was actually the messenger of the Lord. And in verse 22, Moa, it says, Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. So do you see what I'm getting at here? Again, asking... Why God doesn't show up is not really a straightforward question because the Bible shows a wide variety of examples of how God shows up, in what sense he shows up, why he chooses to, and what happens when he does. Here's another example. In Job 23, Job poetically cries out, If I go to the east, he is not there. And to the west, yet I do not perceive him, God. In the north, when he is at work, I don't see him. And when he turns to the south, I see no trace of him. But he knows the pathway that I take. If he tested me, I would come forth like gold. And in verse 14, For he fulfills his decree against me, and many such things are his plans. It's why I am terrified in his presence. When I consider, I am afraid because of him. Indeed, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I have not been silent because of the darkness, because of the thick darkness that covered my face. Now in Proverbs 30, Agur's oracle has a similar sentiment. The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, an oracle, this man says to Ithiel, to Ithiel and to Ukel, Surely I am more brutish than any other human being, and I do not have human understanding. I, I have not learned wisdom, nor can I have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and then descended? Who has gathered up the winds in his fists? Who has bound up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What, what's his son's name? Surely you can know. All right, so Job 23 and Proverbs chapter 30 both warn about how pretentious and futile it is to seek God. We just read about that. And yet, Psalm 105.4 encourages us, seek his face continually. All right, just a few more examples and then I'll get to the point here. That Job passage we read was pretty dramatic, right? If I go to the east, he's not there. And to the west, I don't perceive him. I see no trace of him. And yet we see so many other verses in the Bible that talk about how unescapable God's presence is. Where shall I flee from your presence? Psalm 139, 7-8 challenges. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Acts 17, 28 even goes so far as to claim that it is in God that Everybody lives and moves and has their being. So what's the point of sharing all that? Is it just to confuse you or to say that the Bible is inconsistent? Well, not at all. Actually, the point is that we have to be really nuanced 
about our perception and expectations for God's presence. We can't just cherry-pick the biblical data or dismiss it as contradictory. It all goes together, and it all is meant to shape our vision of God, right? That's the conviction of the rebind, if you haven't heard me say it a million times already. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, we all have this burning desire to answer life's most difficult and complicated questions, and yet we demand soundbite-forward answers. If we're dealing with complicated, nuanced questions, we should expect a sophisticated answer. And that's what we get in the Bible. If we try to think of God's presence like an on-off light switch, whether we're conscious of doing that or not, we're going to miss out on important pieces of the puzzle on one end or the other. So what are we left with when we put all of those passages together and let them talk together? What if we didn't pit Job and the Psalms against each other, but actually put them on the same team? Well, I think one of the biggest things we learn is that we need to be working with the right model, the right framework, when we're thinking about God's presence and our expectations. So I coined these two terms, the switch model and the scale model. Switch model, scale model. Copyright Andrew Juliot. June 2020, no take backs. I have no idea how copyright works, by the way, (laughs) as much as I've tried to learn, but wouldn't that be awesome? Just dibs. All right, that's mine. I got royalties. Anyway, okay, the, the switch model and the scale model. I think so many of us end up with these personal doubts and intellectual objections because we're working with the switch model. We're thinking of God's presence like an on off light switch. We're trying to win the game with the wrong set of rules. We're trying to do the math with the wrong equation. Why doesn't God just show up? Why doesn't he just flip on the switch? Well, because the Bible shows us it doesn't work that way, right? It only makes sense for Exodus to say, you can't see God's face for no one can and live, and the Psalms to say, seek his face continually, it only makes sense for some to encounter God's presence and die on the spot while others live if God shows up in different ways, to different degrees. That's why we need to replace the switch model in our minds and our hearts with the scale model. A scale model. The idea being God's presence is not just switched on and off, but we encounter it in various degrees of mediation. Now, here's what I mean by that. Some ways that the people in the Bible experience God's presence is more direct and concentrated, and in other ways, they encounter God who is more indirect and mediated through something else. So, for example, in Exodus 19, the Lord shows up, and picture air quotes every time I say that, to the people on the mountain with a thick storm cloud. And it says in verse 16, On the third day in the morning, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud on the mountain and the sound of a very loud horn, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. Then in the next chapter, in verse 18, it says, All the people who were seeing the thundering and the lightning and heard the sound of the horn and saw the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, 
They trembled with fear and kept their distance. They said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak with us lest we die. Okay, this is what I mean by mediation. Some ways that the people in the Bible experience God's presence is more direct, and other ways it's mediated through something or someone else. And there are a lot of reasons for that, like we just heard, and like we'll unpack next week. But the answers to questions like, what is it we are really asking of God, and, and what would really happen if we got it, will differ depending on what degree of divine presence we have in mind. That's why God could dwell with his people in the tabernacle and not have anyone die, but instantly evaporate the rebellious leaders that go into the Holy of Holies in Leviticus. Because that presence is much more direct and unmediated at that point. In some ways, we all experience God's presence in a very indirect way through the creation of our creator, like Romans 1 and Acts 17 tell us. But there are other ways that we experience it more directly, not fully directly, but less mediated, like when his word is proclaimed, or or we gather as his church. Next week, we're going to take the scale model and start filling it in as we investigate the Bible more closely. But it's worth pausing here for today to think about what it means to move from a switch model way of thinking to a scale model way of thinking. When we're struggling to sense God's presence, we never have to think, God turned off the switch. He's totally absent. Because there are many different ways he's graciously given us to encounter him and his presence. But this isn't to say that you can go hug a tree and get as close to God doing that as coming to church. In fact, the scale model tells us the opposite. Some of the ways that we think we experience God's presence are very indirect and vague at best because they're intentionally limited in what they communicate and show. Not all manifestations of God's presence are created equal. The more indirect forms, like us having our very being in God, as Acts 17 says, is meant to draw us toward the more direct encounter with the Lord, but in the way that he's given us for that to happen. You can't just listen to music and flip the God switch on, just like you can sing hymns at church and turn the God switch on, no different. Because we're working with a scale, not a switch. And there will come a point in history when what we experience on that scale will slide and change. And there will be more on that next week. But I want to take a minute to tie together what we talked about at the beginning here with this scale model that we're talking about now. We mentioned at the start that there are personal reasons for questioning God's hiddenness, and there are intellectual reasons. And that we really need to take the time to think, where is this question coming from before we give an answer? But this scale model actually reinforces that need for contextualizing too. Who is asking the question of God's felt absence and why they're asking it is absolutely essential for determining how to answer it. That's not just because 
personal sensitivity is helpful in every conversation. It's that the scriptures address these questions differently for different audiences, like we've seen. We shouldn't comfort our unbelieving friends with the words of God's presence in the New Testament that are actually only addressed to those united to Jesus. Or at least, we shouldn't do that without presenting what God has made possible for them only in the gospel. Because these stories and promises in the Bible are not blanket statements about God's presence flipped on or off. What is it that we're really asking of God? And what would happen if we really got it? Those are the questions we should be asking instead of just, why doesn't God show up? And those answers will depend on who's asking it. Is this person's doubt or this atheist's objection a frustrated complaint of entitlement? Is it a presumptuous gotcha argument from the first semester philosophy student? Or is it a desperate cry for help from someone who has experienced a lot of pain? Notice in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus responds very differently to two different audiences in the same chapter. To those who actually got to encounter God in the flesh, but kind of dismissed him, these cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida, he, he says that on the day of judgment, it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah. But to the weary and burdened right after that, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Think about that. Different starting points, different motivations, different human responses and problems. And so the answer that Jesus gives is a different kind of promise when it comes to God's presence. This investigation in the Bible shows us that those stories and promises and warnings are complex and varied. But they're also really careful and nuanced and sophisticated so that they provide a satisfying answer to some of life's biggest and most difficult questions. We can't live life with God in the switch model. The Bible presents the scale model instead. And it's not only much more true to life, but it's much more helpful in life too. When we think carefully and differently, like the Bible thinks carefully and differently, we'll start asking a different set of questions. Not just, why doesn't God show up? But, what is it I'm really asking of God? And what would really happen if I got it? I hope that's an encouragement for you both intellectually and personally, but I also hope that's a teaser for next week when we'll actually get a chance to answer some of those questions, when we'll actually flesh out that scale model with what we see in the Bible. What are the different degrees of encountering God? How, how, how does he mediate his presence? In what ways and at what times? What happens when we encounter those different degrees of indirectness? And what does all of that tell us about our personal struggles with God? Tune in next time to find out. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning over at Andrew Horning Sound, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast, along with the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson. If you've been enjoying The Rebind, be sure to spread the word. 
Give us a rating on iTunes, leave us a review, follow us on social media. We got plenty of ways for you to stay connected. Just as Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 33, we too pray. Lord, if your presence does not go with us, don't take us up from here. How will it be known that we have found favor in your sight, we, your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we're distinguished as your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? May your presence mark our witness, our community, and our devotion to the glory of Christ.